All right, this morning, the goal was to spend two hours on one verse. Obviously, the situation has produced a little bit of uh, difficulty uh, since most people are not here this morning. So what I'm going to do, uh, I'm going to call this part one, but for the next just, I don't know, 30 minutes, 35 minutes, I'll at least kind of give some, some basic idea of, of kind of why I'm, I, we're going to look at this one verse and um, try to explain the, the necessity of doing this. One of the things that I have seen and have determined over my Christian life is that there are plenty of verses that should, should lead to lots of discussion and people trying to figure out what they mean, but there's a tendency within the church just to kind of say, well, give me a simple explanation, and then everyone just goes along with that simple explanation, and no one seems to struggle or have any problems. For example, we found that in Romans, when you get to a verse that talks about being judged according to our works, that should raise lots of issues, but everyone just thinks, throw out a simple answer like, well, your works prove whether you're saved, and then that somehow resolves the problem. But if you take that to its logical conclusion, it begins to fall apart because, wait a minute, how can my works ever prove that I'm saved? Because God demands perfection and my works will never show perfection. So that doesn't seem to really work um, if God is the one doing the judging of the works. Uh, Because even my best works is still tainted by sin. So that doesn't make any sense. Um, You've got verses, we've talked about it, I think even Genesis 1.1, well, if God is all-knowing and he's creating a world knowing what's going to happen, then why does he create the world? Those are questions. Um, uh, another, and, and there's a lot of verses we could go through. But these verses create lots of problems. And you can either ignore them or you have to dig in and struggle with them. So what, what we're going to do today is struggle with a verse that everyone knows but I think we have to really try to figure it out. So here's the way I think we should, we should really begin. Before we even get to the verse, before we even open up our Bible and look at it. Um, right now, over the past few years, a word has become very, 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 very popular within popular culture. And that word is deconstruction. All right? And if you, if you watch TikTok videos, it's become very popular and very almost not only popular, but pretty famous now, for someone to go through what they call a deconstruction. And the idea here is, here's someone who's raised a Christian, been a Christian 10, 15 years, and they start deconstructing their faith. In other words, they start looking at their their faith, they start looking at Christianity, and something happens. They reach kind of a crisis of faith, where they're like, mm, I, I don't know anymore about this, and, I, and they start questioning each and every little part of Christianity. And sometimes what happens is by the time their deconstruction process ends, either one, they now embrace a Christianity that is a million times different than the Christianity they embraced just years before, or two, they have come to the conclusion that Christianity is completely fraudulent, it is false, and they reject Christianity. And these videos are watched by lots of people uh, who are like, wow, what happened? Now, for many Christians, when they hear about someone deconstructing, they tend, and, and it's almost they take it personal, right? And you can see why, because if we care about the Christian faith and someone rejects it, we, we get defensive. And so what we tend to do is just say, well, 
They were obviously never a Christian in the first place, so it doesn't matter, and everyone just kind of ignores them and rejects it and moves on. But I think the thing we have to do is sometimes listen to what led to their deconstructing occurring, what led to this process. And there are many reasons. I mean, if you watch every TikTok video out there about it, there's many reasons. But if you... If, but at least one reason that has to be considered is I think that there is a tendency within Christianity to sell Christianity one way, but it is not the reality that anyone actually experiences sitting in the pew. So Christianity is sold a certain way, and for many people, they just go along, well, that's, that's true of Christianity. They convince themselves that it's true, and they never have a problem. But there are other people who start going, man, you said this and you said this and you said that and I'm not experiencing that. That doesn't work. And so they, in many many cases, they become discouraged, depressed, and maybe angry that what was promised to them isn't being, they're not experiencing. It's not, it's not something that is a part of their life. Now, this leads to uh, lots of problems. And I think what we have to do is ask ourselves, is Christianity being sold in a way that's not accurate to what the Bible presents or what the Bible put forth? And I can give you a number of examples like this. Obviously, in the charismatic world, we all know how they sell Christianity. If you put your faith in Jesus Christ, then your faith, uh, uh, you know, what, what he did on the cross can guarantees physical healing right here, right now in this life. Now, there's millions of people who go to charismatic churches who believe that, even though everything around them shows people not being healed, people not being healed, people getting sick, people getting sick. I mean, I, when I worked in the appointment line, we, we'd get, I would get phone calls from people I know who go to charismatic churches who believe that healing is guaranteed, and they're calling us for an appointment. And I always wanted to say, why would you be calling me for an appointment? Healing is guaranteed. But they, can't, they don't see the apparent contradiction in it. They just accept that's the way it's sold. But there will be someone who, when the crisis of faith happens, they, they can't be healed or someone in their family dies. All of a sudden, they will question it and start deconstructing. So that's just one example. Another example we've talked about a million times is uh, the, the, the idea that if anyone's in Christ, he's a new creature. Old things are passed away. All things have become new. Well, that sounds good. So that's preached in what way? That that's practically true in your everyday life, but what do you experience in your everyday life? Has everything become new? No, you still sin. Why do you still sin? Okay, well, because something clearly is still the way it was. There's something still there. So uh, Christians will preach that, but there'll be someone who'll be like, well, wait a minute. Why do I keep sinning? Why do I keep having this problem? Why do I keep struggling? So as a result, many people will then begin to deconstruct and throw that out. And so what we realized is, wait a minute, maybe we should understand that verse not in regards to our practical experience, but our position before God, because before God, I am a new creature. All old is gone. Everything is new because I'm completely forgiven of my sins and I'm declared perfectly righteous and holy. And then we realized in the context of that verse that's really how we're supposed to view one another. That as a Christian, I'm, I'm not to view someone based on their sin, but I'm to see the reality of their position before God. So we, we can correct that. But it requires, it requires us to acknowledge that maybe the way we sell it 
is not the way that it is. And we need to correct the way we sell it. But sometimes there are certain verses that you're like, but that seems to really say that. So then we have to be willing to go, okay, let's take a look at it and let's try to figure this out. And that's the verse we're going to be looking at. But before we get to the verse, let's do this. If you have the uh, Trinity hymnal, go to page 852. Because this is a reality that no matter what we do here, we have to, this is a reality we have to just get down. In other words, whatever, whatever Christianity sells, right? If it sells something that contradicts this reality that we're about to read, then we've got we've to question why it's being sold that way. And if you go to page 852, 852, we're on the chapter, this is the Westminster Confession of Faith, and we're in the chapter dealing with the fall of man, uh, of sin, and of the punishment thereof, okay? And if you'll look at paragraph 5, right, we read this. This corruption of nature that comes about because of the fall, right, during this life does what? Does remain or doth remain and those that are regenerated. The corruption of nature remains in anyone who is regenerated. Now, immediately that throws out which idea? That in a practical way, you can't say that anyone who's in Christ is a new creature, old things have passed away and everything has become new, because this just told you what doesn't become new? Your nature. Your corrupt nature does not become new in regeneration. Regeneration does not get rid of the old nature. So immediately you have to go, well, wait a minute, that verse can't say what it's, how it is sold. It has to be dealing with something different. It goes on to say, or they go on to say, this, this corruption of nature during this life doth remain, and those that are regenerated, and although it be through Christ, pardoned and mortified, yet both itself and all the motions thereof are truly and properly what? Sin. It's there. And then if we go on to read other parts of the Westminster Confession of Faith or the London Baptist Confession of Faith, they even talk that even as a believer, we can fall into grievous sins. The, uh, the London Baptist and Westminster both acknowledges that. And then if we go to uh, Romans chapter 7, we have Paul acknowledging that the things he wants to do, he doesn't. The things he doesn't want to do, he does. And then he says with his mind, he serves what? The law of God with his flesh. The law of sin, right? We remember it's at the end of Romans chapter 7. And somehow that's just forgotten because Christianity is sold that when you become a Christian, you're a new creature, everything's different, you're now more than a conqueror, you're victorious, you can stop sinning, you have the ability, you can do it. But then they typically will then throw in, but no one will be perfect. Or, or see the small print. That Do you see... Do you see how that can really lead to some people getting really frustrated with Christianity and going, well, it's not real. It's not real. We've got to, we've got to think about how we sell it because on one hand, we have a theology that would seem to explain reality, right? Hey, we still have a sinful nature. We're still going to sin. We have some verses that are taken and preached in a way that ignores that reality, in other words, if, we're gonna, if we have a verse that seems to go against that reality, we have to understand the verse 
in light of that reality, not creating two separate realities and then somehow we, we find a way to make them work in a Christian brain because you can't do that. If the two contradict, then it's our responsibility to do what? Figure it out. Now, is it fun to figure it out? No. It's difficult. It's, 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 it's complicated, but it's what we're going to have to do. So the verse that we're going to be working on today, all right, is 1 Corinthians chapter 10. All right? 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Verse 13. Very famous verse. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13. Everybody there? 1 Corinthians 10, 13. There hath no temptation taken you But such as is common to man, but God is faithful, who will not suffer you to be tempted above what you are able, but will with the temptation also make a way to escape that you may be able to bear it. All right. Now, if you read that verse, the first question we have to ask ourselves is, what does the verse appear to be saying? What does it appear to be saying? Well, we, we can, I think we can all agree that it appears to be saying what? What would be like a, just an obvious, simplistic answer? What does this verse seem to be telling us? That basically, whatever temptation we face, we are able. We're able. Now, uh, able to do what? That would be the obvious question, right? Able to do what? But it is preached that you are able not to sin. That God is not going to give you a temptation that you can't resist. So that means any temptation to sin, any enticement to sin in any way, shape, or form, you can resist it. And not only can you resist it, he's also going to give you what? A way to escape it. So you have the ability, right? And you have a way of escape. Now, if that is, if both concepts are true the way that it is typically taught, what would be the logical conclusion that one would have to arrive at? It is possible to be sinless. And not only is it possible, it should be the most probable thing because you have the ability. God's not going to give you any temptation that you can't resist. That's the way it's preached. And that there's a way of escape. Well, that would be, that would be great news. That, wouldn't that be great news? But I got 2,000 years of church history that seems to indicate what? Sin, sin is not the exception. Sin is the normal experience. Yes? And, 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 and then you have to take into account, well, wait a minute. If I still have the old nature then how can I be, how, why would I be able to not sin if I still have the old nature? Because wouldn't the old nature almost put me in a position where I would sin? Yes? So immediately we start having some problems with this verse. So then what are some, what are some possible, so the verse seems to be saying we don't, we, we don't have to sin or that we have the ability not to. Reality shows us That sin is not only something that has happened in 2,000 years of church history. It happens in your life and my life, right? So now we've got apparent contradiction. So what is our possible solutions to this? 
What are some of the solutions that Christians have come up with to try to handle this verse? Well, one approach is this, is that that shouldn't be temptation. That should be trial. So no trial has taken you, but such is common to man. But God is faithful who will not suffer you to have a trial above what you are able and that with that trial, you may be a, a way to escape it, and, and, and there's a way to escape that you may be able to bear it. Now, that sounds good, right? That sounds good, but what's the major issue with that? Pro- well, what's the major problem with this? Is that the, a trial, every trial, is a temptation. Because every trial, you are confronted, are you going to respond to it What? in a biblical godly way, or are you going to respond in an ungodly way? In other words, every, within every trial, there is an enticement. Remember, the definition of temptation that I gave in the Bible study exercise is a temptation is any enticement to move you away from God's standard in thought, word, action, or attitude. Well, every trial is an enticement, right? Because something goes wrong, and then you are enticed to respond in an unbiblical manner, right? So in a sense, every, even if you say this is a trial, trials are temptations. Now, if you respond to the trial in the right way, then the trial stays a trial and is not necessarily classified as a temptation. But if you respond in a wrong way, then it becomes a temptation and then you've sinned. Now, just think of, even if you say this is a trial, you're still left right back with the concept of a temptation, yes? So even if you say this is a trial, think about it. So God's not going to give you any trial that you can't respond to in a correct way. Well, just think of how many just minor difficulties that we experience in life. Nothing tragic, not like the house burned down, someone died. Just your normal, everyday things that irritate you and bother you. How many times do we not even respond to those in a biblical way? We grumble, we complain, right? We get, I mean, we sin all the time. So, and you're still left, you see, you're still left with the same problem, right? You're still left with the same. And not only that, can you think of the logical implications there, right? Someone experiences some horrible tragedy. Their child is killed by a drunk driver and they seem to be upset. And you're like, hey now, hey now, God's not going to give you more than you can handle. So you better be handling yourself in a correct way. Don't be getting too upset. Don't get mad. Don't be bitter. Don't have any thoughts of revenge because that wouldn't be biblical and God's not going to give you more than you can handle. And, and not only that, that would imply, well, if I couldn't handle it, then God wouldn't have killed my, allowed my child to die. So maybe I should just stop being able to handle it. Like, it just leads to so many philosophical problems. Right? So even if you go with the trial idea, you're still, in, you're still enter into the world of a temptation. Does that make sense? So that doesn't really work. That doesn't solve anything. Because, I I mean, look, anybody says, anybody who tries to make some argument that this this is a trial and we can handle it correctly, all you really have to do is say, okay, get ready to walk away and just turn around and just slap them and see how they respond. Because they probably will immediately respond in an unbiblical way, right? It, it probably would only take a cut and say, well, what, what are you doing? You have the ability to handle it correctly. I, I, that's just, I, I, don't, I don't think that works very good. What's another possible way of handling it? 
Another way of handling is that you can stop sinning. You can stop. God is not going to give you more than you can handle. You can stop sinning. And if you keep sinning, that is probably proof that you're not saved. That is how some people handle this. That if continuing sin is proof that you're not saved. Now, the only problem is when they say continuing sin proves someone is not saved, the reason that creates so many problems is you have to either reduce what sin is or you have to just start living in a complete land of denial that, that you're, you're, you're not doing what you're, you know, you're, that you're doing what you think that you are, okay, which is not obviously the case. So none of those approaches work. Trial doesn't necessarily work because that's still a temptation. Saying that we can, we can stop sinning and if you don't, you're not saved, that doesn't fix the problem. So I think the only possible option is that we have to take a different approach to the verse. I think that's the only... I, I think if we don't take a different approach to the verse, the problems are going to remain. So we have to take a different approach. So let's do this. Let's at least break down the verse just in its basic parts, so that we can at least see what's there. Remember, what's the first step in all good Bible study? Observation, right? You can't interpret what you haven't observed. So we've got to do a little, just a basic observation. So 1 Corinthians 10, 13, let's break it apart, right? What's the first thing that we see in 1 Corinthians 10, 13? There hath no temptation taken you, but such is common to man. All right. So the first thing, it's a clear, easy observation. And it's basically saying what? Any temptation you face, it's common. Other people have faced similar temptations. Right? In other words, you can kind of break temptations down into different categories and you've experienced a temptation somewhere in that kind of category, some way, shape, or form. Right? It's common. So in other words, you can't say when you're being tempted, oh man, this is the, no one has ever been tempted this way. No, it is common. All right. So that, that seems to imply that temptation is something everyone's going to continue to experience and to face. All right. Now the next, the next thing is what? Temptation is common. God is faithful. Now on one side, that's a, that immediately that gives us a sense of like, great, this is awesome, right? God is faithful. Yes. Temptation is common. God is faithful. And what does it mean that he's faithful? What's the idea of him being faithful? Trustworthy. Is that a good way of saying it? That he is Trustworthy. We can count. He is faithful and trustworthy to do what he says he's going to do. So temptation is something that's common, but God is faithful. Okay, great news. That's great news. God is faithful. Awesome, awesome, awesome. Now, this is where it gets really problematic. All right? This is where we have all kinds of problems. The next thing is we find what in the verse? He is faithful and will not suffer you to be tempted above what you are able. The next observation is what? Temptation is common. God is faithful. And and this is a big one. Number three, God is in control of the temptations you experience. The philosophical problems that arise from that are about a million, right? Right? 
Okay, because think about it. All right, if God is in control of the temptations, just go through your Bible. Do you see people sinning? Yes. Well, what would be the obvious question? If God is in charge of the temptation and God knew that they were going to sin, even if you say that they were able to stop, not do it, if God knows they're going to sin, their ability would be irrelevant at that point in time. God knows that they're going to sin, so why would he allow that temptation to happen in the first place? Now, I don't have any easy answers for that. I don't think there's any easy answers. I mean, isn't that the problem? Don't we struggle with that from the very beginning? God created Adam and Eve. He allowed the temptation. Did he not know they were going to fall? And everybody would have to say what? Yes. Well, then why did he allow it to happen? And then the only solution is somehow sin is a part of God's sovereign plan. Now, you've got to be careful with that. Because I can say, well, I sinned, but it was a part of God's sovereign plan, so don't blame me. We're still responsible for it. But it's just, it's just hard to wrap your mind around that God somehow is, is involved. And he's controlling what you experience or what you don't experience. Right? So God is faithful and God is in control of the temptation. And then the next observation, what was number one? Temptation is common. Number two, God is faithful. Number three, God is somehow sovereignly in control of temptation. And number four, We're able, right? God is not going to give us more than, than we are able. It speaks of somehow an, our, our ability. Now, what's the question here? What should be the question we should ask? The observation is obvious, right? Somehow we're able. Able. Now, what, what, what should we ask here about this ability, this being able? Able to do what? Now, how are we, do we typically interpret this? Able to not sin. Is, is, that, is that how we understand it? So we have to figure out the, uh, the ability. So God is in charge of the temptation. Not, he's not going to give you one more than you are able, right? And does it say able, does it say anything about the ability? It just says, uh, he's not going to give you, that you are able. It's just, it, doesn't, it doesn't explain anything about this ability. Ability to do what? Okay. Then, but with the temptation, he's going to provide a way of escape. So the next observation is, he's going to give a way of escape. All right, well, escape from what? That would be the question, right? How do we interpret that escape? To not sin. Now we, so we have, this is the way in our, our brains, we just, this because we've been so conditioned, the ability here is an ability not to sin. And that the escape is to escape sin. And then we can escape, and then what does he say at the end? The last observation. Now the, I think the ability, tell me if you think this is wrong grammatically or the way this verse is structured, wouldn't the ability be the ability to endure it or the ability to bear it? And that the escape is we escape something so that we can bear it or endure it? Does that make sense? Or do we, are, are the, the ability there has nothing to do with the endurance at the end? 
I, the reason I say this is to endure it doesn't mean just what, what's, what some other words could be used other than endure it or bear it? What's some other words that could be used here? If we go with the typical interpretation, God's not going to give you a temptation beyond what you are able. He's going to provide a way of escape so that what, what's some other things we could say going with the normal temptation, the normal uh, interpretation of this so that you don't sin. But it doesn't say that, does it? So that you can avoid sin. It doesn't say that. So that you can escape sin. It doesn't say that. Right? So the ability and the escape, whatever it is, it leads to us being able to bear it or to endure it. So what does it mean to endure it? What does it mean to endure it? We get through it. Right? So I just, I just think that we have to at least be careful not to make the verse say something that it may not. We've just so conditioned to go, oh, this verse says, I'm a, that God's not going to give me a temptation that I can't, I'm not able to resist, so I, I don't have to sin, and that he's going to give me a way to escape so that I don't have to sin. So the implication here, some way, somehow, is basically I don't have to sin. Now, typically, preachers will preach it that way and say, but... No one's going to be perfect. Well, hey, you don't have to, but no one's going. Well, then why am I, why is no one going to be perfect if, like, that just makes no sense to me. So I just want us to just, sometimes we, we're we're so conditioned and reading these verses that what we have a tendency to do is we just read what everyone has told us about the verse into the verse. I'm not saying the verse isn't implying some of those things that people may claim. I'm just saying, though, the language is very precise here. Like, it, like the way we preach it is almost as like Paul's just walking up going, hey, guys, nobody has to sin because God's not going to give you a temptation that you're not able to handle. He's going to provide a way of escape. So just nobody, nobody sin anymore. But he, he doesn't quite say it that way, does he? You have an ability. There's an escape but it's to endure, 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 to bear it. I said, what, what exactly does that mean? That's what we're going to have to figure out. That's what we're going to have to figure out. Now, I think, here's my own, well, let's just do this really quick. All right? Um, I think if we just zoom out from 1 Corinthians 10, 13, and we just back up a little bit, we can, we can easily remind ourselves of what? 1 Corinthians is a letter written to a church located in a city, and the city is influencing the church more than the church is influencing the city, right? We've, we've gone through that a million times, okay? Now, the one thing we know about 1 Corinthians is that what, what can we say about the church Corinth? Sin, 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 sin. They are divided, fighting, getting even drunk at the Lord's Supper, suing one another. I mean, they're having every kind of known problem under this, their sexual sin. They're, they're just having every kind of problem in the world, right? We can all agree that this, it, it just seems weird to me that 1 Corinthians 10, 13 appears in a book where everyone is sinning, 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 sinning. Now, we do know this, that even though they're all sinning, Paul constantly refers to them as what? Believers. He calls them babes in Christ. He said, but he says that they are what? Carnal. Fleshly. 
Now, why wouldn't Paul start 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and say, Hey, guys, I hear that there's a lot of sin going on in the church. Stop it. You don't have to do it. God gives you a way of escape, so nobody should sin. But he doesn't do that in chapter 1, does he? He doesn't do it in chapter 2. He doesn't do it in chapter 3. He doesn't do it in chapter 4 or chapter 5 or chapter 6 or chapter 7 or chapter 8 or chapter 9. So you would have to raise the question, why would all of a sudden in the middle of chapter 10, he just throws in in one verse, hey, you don't have to sin. And then goes immediately in chapter 11 and 12 to to start describing what? Sin problems. that, that, That gives me pause to think maybe we've not interpreted it correctly. Not only that, if we, now we zoom out. Now if we zoom in, 1 Corinthians 10, 13 appears in what chapter? Chapter 10. And if you go to 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 1, read verse 1, what do you discover? Moreover, brethren, I would not that you should be ignorant how that all our fathers were under the cloud. Now the fathers there refer to whom? Israel. Now, wait a minute. 1 Corinthians 10, 13 appears in a chapter about Israel. What is the one thing you know about Israel by reading your Bible? Sin, 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 rebellion, 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 rebellion. So immediately I'm like, wait a minute. Verse 13 doesn't make any sense. Then following in chapter 10 is specific examples of Israel's sin. So that means there's got to be a way to figure this out. So here's what I want you to do. All right, we'll just end with this. All right, we didn't get very far, but at least we, we at least got everyone started. Now, in the next hour, I'm going to have to repeat probably all of this, but that's okay. That, that, that's, we'll, just, we'll consider this just a, a, a practice, I guess, all right? Because I'm going to have to re, basically repeat everything in the next hour, but that's okay. All right, everybody, I want you to write down these words. On one side of your, just take a piece of paper, draw a line down the middle. On one side, write down three words. Able, escape, and endure or bear it. Those all come from 1 Corinthians 10, 13, right? An ability, escape, and, and endurance or to bear it. How does that, how does that make any sense? Like, I don't know exactly what that means, but maybe we have to understand ability, escape, and endurance. Maybe we have to understand it. And on the other side of the page, I want you to write down all of the following terms. You ready? Drink. Chastisement. Atonement. Intercession. Death. Serpent, high priest. Drink, chastisement, atonement, intercession, death, serpent, and high priest. I know you're thinking, what in the world does that have to do with able, escape, and endurance? Well, I think all of those words that I just gave are connected to what comes prior to 1 Corinthians 10, 13. And I think somewhere in there has to be an answer. So we'll just stop right there and uh, we'll, we'll, we'll see how we put all this back together in the next hour. Right? Does that make sense? All right. Well, we'll, we'll pray. Lord God, we come before you this morning.
Lord, in spite of circumstances, thank you for at least giving us the opportunity to consider some of this and at least getting our, our thinking going in the right direction and pray that somehow in the next hour we're able to really put this all together and, and maybe try, try to come as close as possible to completing the entire study. We ask this in Jesus' name. And God's people said,